0: Welcome to the Matrix, my friends. This is the Corbett Report, and I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 31st day of August 2007. It is with great sadness that the Corbett Report notes the passing of a great American patriot last week, Friday, the 24th of August 2007. Aaron Russo, The producer of America, Freedom to Fascism, died at the age of 64. Mr. Russo led a long and full life as an entrepreneur, nightclub manager, film producer, political candidate, and true patriot. He started off his career in the family undergarment business, where in 1963 he designed the first ladies' bikini underwear. He went on to manage a nightclub in Chicago, which brought Led Zeppelin to the United States for the first time before becoming the manager of Bette Midler and managing her rise to fame. He produced major Hollywood movies, including Eddie Murphy's Trading Places. But perhaps most importantly, in the last decade, he became very interested in politics, producing a political video entitled Aaron Russo's Mad as Hell. He ran in the primary for governor of Nevada in 1998 and ran for president of the United States under the Libertarian Party ticket in 2004. In 2006, he released his epic work, America, Freedom to Fascism, which is an excellent documentary exposing the Federal Reserve System, the fraudulent nature of the income tax in the United States, the IRS, and other methods of government control. With this film alone, which I highly recommend, Mr. Russo has made a lasting contribution to the fight against the forces of tyranny that seek to enslave you. I thought it would only be fitting to begin our open-source investigation this week by turning to an audio clip of an interview with Mr. Aaron Russo, which Alex Jones conducted in January of 2007. In this interview, Mr. Russo talks about his friendship with Nick Rockefeller, the influential member of the famed Rockefeller family, whose friendship he fostered in the late 1990s. During his friendship with Mr. Rockefeller, Mr. Russo learned some interesting facts about what is really going on in the world— And Mr. Russo shares some of those revelations in this interview. For the full interview, please go to my website, www.corbettreport.com, and under the present time index, you will find a link to the Google video of the entire interview with Mr. Russo. Let's turn to the audio clip.
1: Uh, I met Rockefeller through a female attorney I knew, who called me up one day and said, uh, one of the Rockefellers would like to meet you. I had made a video called Mad as Hell. And uh, he would seen the video and wanted to meet me. And knew I was running for governor of Nevada. So sure, I'd love to meet him. And I met him and I liked him. And uh, uh, he was a very, very smart man. And uh, we used to talk and share ideas and thoughts. And um, he's the one who told me uh, 11 months before 9-11 ever happened. That there was going to be an event. Never tell them what the event was going to be. But there was going to be an event. And out of that event, uh, we were going to invade Afghanistan to run uh, pipelines from the Caspian Sea. We were going to invade Iraq, you know, to take over the oil fields, establish a base in the Middle East, and make it all part of the New World Order. And we'd go after Chavez in Venezuela. And uh, sure enough, Later, 9-11 happened, and I remember he was telling me how how you're going to see soldiers looking in caves for people in in Afghanistan and Pakistan and all these places, and and there's going to be this war on terror, uh, which is no real enemy, and the whole thing is a giant hoax, you know, but it's a way for the government to take over the American people. He told you it was going to be a hoax. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no question. She says, there's going to be war in terror. And he's just laughing. No... <laughs> who are we fighting? I mean, why do you think 9-11 happened and then nothing's happened since then? Do you think that our security is so great here that these people who pulled off 9-11 were able to uh, can't knock down another plane? Come on, it's ridiculous. 9-11 was done by people in our own government and our own banking system to perpetuate the fear of the American people into subordinating themselves to anything the government wants them to do. That's what it's about, and to create this this endless war on terror.
0: Those are some astounding claims, to be sure. And with any astounding claims, as Mr. Russo undoubtedly would have pointed out, it is the individual's responsibility to find out whether the person making those astounding claims is in fact telling the truth. So let's turn now to a BBC documentary that came out in 2004, entitled The Power of Nightmares. This documentary rather forcefully makes the point that Al-Qaeda, as we know it, the supposed enemy in this fake war on terror, does not in fact exist, or at least not in the way that we are told it does by the controlled corporate media, who are seeking to scare us, and thus revealing themselves as the actual terrorist's. Instead, al-Qaeda is revealed to be a government creation which is being used as a tool of political control over the masses. Again, this is a good documentary, and I recommend that you check it out. Again, you can find the link to that documentary from my website, CorbettReport.com. Let's turn now to The Power of Nightmares.
2: In the past, politicians promised to create a better world. They had different ways of achieving this but their power and authority came from the optimistic visions they offered their people. Those dreams failed, and today people have lost faith in ideologies. Increasingly politicians are seen simply as managers of public life, but now they have discovered a new role that restores their power and authority. Instead of delivering dreams, Politicians now promise to protect us from nightmares. They say that they will rescue us from dreadful dangers that we cannot see and do not understand. And the greatest danger of all is international terrorism, a powerful and sinister network with sleeper cells in countries across the world. A threat that needs to be fought by a war on terror. But much of this threat is a fantasy which has been exaggerated and distorted by politicians. It's a dark illusion that has spread unquestioned through governments around the world, the security services and the international media. This is a series of films about how and why that fantasy was created and who it benefits. Even Bin Laden's displays of strength for the Western media were faked. The fighters in this video had been hired for the day and told to bring their own weapons. For beyond his own small group, Bin Laden had no formal organisation until the Americans invented one for him. In January 2001, a trial began in a Manhattan courtroom The four men accused of the embassy bombings in East Africa. But the Americans had also decided to prosecute bin Laden in his absence. But to do this under American law, the prosecutors needed evidence of a criminal organisation. Because as with the Mafia, that would allow them to prosecute the head of the organisation, even if he could not be linked directly to the crime. And the evidence for that organisation was provided for them by an ex-associate of Bin Laden's called Jamal al-Fadl.
3: During the investigation of the 1998 bombings, there is a walk-in source, Jamal al-Fadl, who is a Sudanese militant who was with Bin Laden in the early 90s, who has been passed around a whole series of Middle Eastern um, secret services, none of whom want much to do with him, who ends up in America and is taken on by uh, the American government, effectively, as a key prosecution witness and given a huge amount of American taxpayers' money at the same time. Um, His account is used as raw material to build up a picture of al-Qaeda. The picture that the FBI want to build up is one that will fit the existing laws that they will have to use to prosecute those responsible for the bombing. Now, those laws were drawn up to counteract organized crime, the mafia, drugs crime, crimes where people being a member of an organization is extremely important. You have to have an organization to get a prosecution. Uh, and you have Al Fadl and a number of other witnesses, a number of other sources, who are happy to feed into this, who've got material that looked at in a certain way, can be seen to show this organization's existence. You put the two together and you get what is the first Bin Laden myth, the first al-Qaeda myth. And because it's one of the first, it's extremely influential.
2: The picture al Fadel drew for the Americans of Bin Laden was of an all-powerful figure at the head of a large terrorist network that had an organised hierarchy of control. He also said that Bin Laden had given this network a name, al-Qaeda. It was a dramatic and powerful picture of bin Laden, but it bore little relationship to the truth. The reality was that bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri had become the focus of a loose association of disillusioned Islamist militants who were attracted by the new strategy. But there was no organisation. These were militants who mostly planned their own operations and looked to bin Laden for funding and assistance. He was not their commander. There is also no evidence that Bin Laden used the term Al-Qaeda to refer to the name of a group until after September the 11th, when he realized that this was the term the Americans had given him. In reality, Jamal al-Fadl was on the run from Bin Laden, having stolen money from him. In return for his evidence, the Americans gave him witness protection in America and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Many lawyers at the trial believed that al-Fadl exaggerated and lied to give the Americans the picture of a terrorist organization that they needed to prosecute bin Laden.
0: That clip itself makes three rather astounding claims. One of those being that al-Qaeda as an organization with a linked terrorist network and sleeper cells around the world capable of acting on the command of its leader at any time is a complete fabrication which came out of a courtroom in Manhattan in 2001 where four men were being tried in relation to the 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, which killed 224 people. And I think the documentary makes that point rather clearly. But two other astounding points are also raised, the first being, the first being that even clips purporting to show Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda are themselves tricks played on us by the media. The documentary gives the example of a clip which has been released to show the Osama bin Laden as the leader of a large group of trained um, military-style operatives dressed in camouflage and wielding large automatic weapons, who in fact were paid actors who were told to show up at that, that day with their own weapons to make it look like Osama bin Laden was in charge of a group of fighting men. However, the trickery is not only on Bin Laden's side, and in fact goes much deeper than that. We have numerous reports of different fake Al-Qaeda video releases. The most obvious of those is the one in which Osama Bin Laden supposedly admits to having participated in the planning of the 9-11 attacks. And in that video, you'll notice that Osama Bin Laden is a stout man with a wide nose, But again, don't take my word for that. Please go check the video clip out for yourself and make your own comparisons. But we also have other reports. This one from October 5th, 2006. U.S. government caught red-handed releasing staged al-Qaeda videos, which details how the U.S. government took footage which had been admitted to be surveillance footage taken by a quote-unquote security agency, which had even been used in a U.K. docudrama, The Road to Guantanamo and then years later re-edited the footage and re-released it as a new Al-Qaeda tape. The level of duplicity in such a movie is as- outstanding, especially when it's so obvious and so easily verifiable that that was a complete hoax. But it gets even worse. A recent Wired.com story from August 2nd, 2007 talks about a researcher named Neil Krawitz, who was able to use digital analysis ...on various Al-Qaeda video releases. He was able to use quantization tables in JPEG files... ...and then compare data to metadata embedded in the image... ...to determine when various elements within the image had been resaved or altered. And looking at the error-level analysis... ...he was able to determine that the Al-Qaeda Media Center watermark... ...was added at the exact same time as the Intel Center watermark... The Intel Center is a supposedly private company which is in fact populated by ex-military intelligence officials, which translates and releases Al-Qaeda video releases as they become available. The implications are obvious that the Intel Center is in fact in some way involved with the production of these videos, and the evidence is irrefutable. But interestingly, Mr. Krawetz, who originally after being questioned by the reporter about this evidence and affirming that, in fact, his analysis did lead him to believe that the Intel Center had, in fact, created the Al-Qaeda watermark as well, later ended up retracting that after having been contacted by security officials. A very interesting story indeed, and one that would shine light on the Intel Center's ability to predict when new Al-Qaeda tapes would be released, there were also numerous articles online detailing how Al-Qaeda tapes miraculously always seem to be released at a time which best serves the neocons fear-mongering purposes. And again, those reports are all available on my website. The third astounding claim from that Power of Nightmares clip was that the name Al-Qaeda itself actually doesn't even come from Osama bin Laden. It comes from the U.S. government. This claim is a matter of record and easily enough verifiable. We have a Article written in The Guardian after the 7-7 attacks in London by Robin Cook, the former Secretary of State in the United Kingdom, who resigned his post as leader of the House of Commons in 2003 to protest the illegal invasion of Iraq. In the article, Mr. Cook writes of Mr. Bin Laden, quote, "...throughout the 80s he was armed by the CIA and funded by the Saudis to wage jihad against the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda, literally the database was originally the computer file of the thousands of Mujahideen who were rec- recruited and trained with help from the CIA to defeat the Russians. End quote. The implications of this are obvious. It leads back to intelligence agency support of the Mujahideen in the Afghanistan war against the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s. Of course, the official narrative goes that the intelligence agencies who created and even named these groups of terrorists suddenly lost control or lost tabs on these terrorists, forgot about them, and suddenly they surfaced in New York in 2001. And if you believe that, then I suppose nothing I say will have any ramifications for you, so you might as well stop listening. But uh, if you don't believe that intelligence agencies who are, receive tens of billions of dollars of on-the-books fundings and who knows how many tens of billions in off-the-books fundings with operatives all over the world are unable to keep tags on the terrorists which they create and foster and name, well then perhaps you should be interested in pursuing this research further. We'll turn back to The Power of Nightmares now to further reinforce a point that Mr. Russo made in his interview clip at the beginning of today's episode. He made the claim that Nick Rockefeller told him months before 9-11 that this event, which was going to happen, according to Mr. Rockefeller, to precipitate the war on terror, would end up with Americans looking in caves in Afghanistan for terrorists who aren't there. Well, as we know, that's exactly what happened. And in fact, The Power of Nightmares makes it clear how the media manipulated the American public to really start looking in those holes in the sides of caves in Afghanistan as if they were going to find something. But in fact, the entire idea turned out to be a laughable fraud. Laughable if it wasn't so deadly. Let's turn back to The Power of Nightmares.
2: In December, the Northern Alliance told the Americans that bin Laden was hiding in the mountains of Tora Bora. They were convinced they had found the heart of his organization.
1: The search for Osama bin Laden, there was constant
2: discussion about him hiding out in caves, and I think many times the American people have a perception that it's a little hole dug out of a side of a mountain. Oh, no. This is it. This is a fortress. Yes. A complex, multi-tiered, bedrooms and offices on the top, as you can see. Secret exits on the side and, the en- and on the bottom. Cut deep to avoid thermal detection. A ventilation system to allow people to breathe and to carry on. The entrance is large enough to drive trucks and even tanks. Even computer systems and telephone systems. It's a very sophisticated operation. Oh, you bet. This is serious business. And, and there's not one of those. There are many of those. Days, the Americans bombed the mountains at Tora Bora with the most powerful weapons they had. The Northern Alliance had been paid more than a million dollars for their help and information, and now their fighters set off up the mountains to storm bin Laden's fortress and bring back the Al Qaeda terrorists and their leader. But all they found were a few small caves which were either empty or had been used to store ammunition. There was no underground bunker system, no secret tunnels. The fortress didn't exist. The Northern Alliance did produce some prisoners they claimed were Al-Qaeda fighters. But there was no proof of this. And one rumour was that the Northern Alliance was simply kidnapping anyone who looked remotely like an Arab and selling them to the Americans for yet more money. The Americans now began to search all the caves in all the mountains of eastern Afghanistan for the hidden Al-Qaeda network.
1: We found a cave. The rest of it is uh, open, break. If nobody went up to look into that cave, people could have been hiding up there for days and watching
0: everything that we did.
2: But wherever they looked, there was nothing there. Al-Qaeda seemed to have completely disappeared.
0: So we're presented with a situation where the neocon hype-mongers in the U.S. Bush administration have managed to create a myth of al-Qaeda to wage a mythical war on terror on mythical enemy combatants. And of course the war on terror is used, as everyone knows, as a way to line the pockets of the business cronies of the Bush administration in Halliburton and other such companies who win billion-plus-dollar no-bid contracts and then move offices to Dubai, but that's neither here nor there. And of course, we also know that the war on terror is being used to implement a police state at home in preparation for martial law. Again, I urge you to look up PDD 51 for more on that. And of course, we know that they flat out lied to us about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in order to get the American public motivated for that illegal invasion back in 2003. And we know they're currently lying about things like the SPP being the North American Union and calling people crazy. UFO watchers, if they believe in the Security and Prosperity Partnership, which is an admitted government program to merge the bureaucracies of the three independent nations of Canada, America, and Mexico. We know, in short, that the neocons lie at every turn, in every way, to the public, unabashedly, seemingly with no qualms about doing so. And if you believe that they would lie about every single other aspect of everything that's happened during their administration so far, but are telling the complete and utter truth about 9-11, well then I suppose you'll have to stay tuned for next week when I will be dedicating my podcast to 9-11 and the 9-11-07 Global Day of Action, which will be taking place on September 11th this year. But I'd like to get into the political philosophy of the neoconservatives who are running the Bush administration. These are the self-same neocons, namely people like Richard Perle, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz... Dick Cheney, William Crystal, and others, who were signatories to the Project for a New American Century, which released a report in September of 2000 called Rebuilding America's Defenses, which said that absent a catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor, there would be no way to mobilize the American public into projecting American power throughout the globe in the 21st century, starting, of course, with Central Asia and Afghanistan, which conveniently provided access to the Caspian Sea gas reserves and afforded a convenient pipeline from Turkmenistan to Pakistan for the oil company cronies of the Bush administration, one of whom was later installed in power as the president of Afghanistan, a puppet president if ever there was one. But again, that's neither here nor there. These are the congenital liars who have their hands on the levers of power of government. But why do they lie to the general public? Why aren't they more forthcoming about their agenda? Well, this leads back to the philosophical guru of the movement, Leo Strauss. Dr. Leo Strauss was a political philosopher, a German Jew who escaped Nazi persecution and who ended up teaching in universities in North America. He died in 1973, but before he died, he was able to amass a group of followers, among them the current-day neocons, who adhere to his political philosophy. Well, what did Dr. Leo Strauss believe? For that, we'll turn to Shadia Drury. She's a professor at the University of Regina and one of the leading critical analysts of Dr. Strauss's life and thought. She's written two, two books about Dr. Leo Strauss— and two years ago, in 2005, she joined Michael Enright on the CBC Sunday Edition to talk about Dr. Leo Strauss and his political ideas. Let's turn to that audio clip.
4: All right. Let me ask you an impossibly difficult question. Then can you can you summarize for us the, the kind of core of his political philosophy, his political thinking? In essence, what was he about, Leo Strauss?
5: Well, as far as his politics, I mean, it came out of this, his, his experience, which, which is his experience in Nazi Germany. He saw the world basically as um, made up of groups that are pitted against one another in mutual hatred and animosity. And you either destroy your enemy or you're destroyed by your enemy. So political society has to be organized in a way that makes the enemy very paramount. Always somehow in view. Only kind of the prevalence of the enemy will keep people united, will keep them together, will keep them strong. So if you you don't have any enemies, you'd better follow the advice of Machiavelli and invent some, you know. And that's exactly what you find in the Bush administration.
4: So he had this is, he has a kind of Hobbesian view of. Of the world and of humankind and of of what we 're about it's it's bleak yes. it's dark and yes. violent, is it?
5: Yes, but uh, there is a sense in which it's much darker than Hobbes and his solutions darker much, than the
4: war of yes. all against all yeah wow.
5: uh, but but the solutions are are not Hobbesian at all because many of hobbes's solutions have to do with rule of law, whereas yeah. strauss's you know solutions uh the only way that you can inspire sort of uh, hedonistic and slothful people to l- fight and die for their nation is to unite the nation with God and with justice and with the absolute so that nationalism and and religion had to be kind of united. And the closer that you allied them, the more likely you were going to to get yeah. kind of military strength and people willing to die and sacrifice themselves for their country.
4: But the odd thing is he didn't think much of religion as a way of thinking. I mean, he thought it was kind of silly.
5: Well, I think he had huge respect for it as a political tool.
4: Right, but not... But,
5: no, he thought of it as... He called it a noble delusion and a pious fraud.
4: A pious fraud. Like, yeah, a okay. pious
5: fraud. But, you know, you needed these kinds of frauds.
4: Uh, you you wrote at one point that he believed a, a polity, or specifically, I guess, the United States, should be ruled by a, a, a pious elite, I think was your phrase. That that he believed in elites. He was not a man, He wasn't a populist. He wasn't really. Am I right in saying he wasn't really much of a Democrat, small D?
5: He was not neither a liberal nor a Democrat. He is an elitist, of course, and he's he is anti-democratic. Uh, but it's the kind of elite that he has cultivated that really bothers me, and it's the an elite that I see as unscrupulous, duplicitous, doesn't care about ordinary people, doesn't care, mm-hmm. care about veracity. And that's what worries me. But, you know, Strauss had some very true things to say about democracy, is that democracy is a kind of a dangerous form of government because it opens itself up to tyranny of the majority. It opens itself up to the rise of demagogues. And and, and Strauss knew that it was in the context of a democratic regime in Weimar that Hitler emerged supreme. So, So Strauss has a fear and a rightful fear of democracy and that fact that democracy is vulnerable to this rise of demagoguery. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what is his solution? His solution seems to me to be worse than the disease.
4: Which would be to what?
5: His, his solution is to create and in, in his own words, to create an, uh, an aristocracy in the midst of mass society and to have an elite mm. of supposedly wise individuals who know the truth, who know what people need, who know what kind of noble lies and pious frauds they need to rule behind the scenes.
0: It's at this point that the discussion comes directly back to Aaron Russo and his points. What we have is a conflict of ideology between Leo Strauss and the neocons on one side, who, recognizing the problem of the tyranny of the majority, seek to impose a system of lies on the American public and the public of the world, indeed, to enforce a worldview which will help them to mobilize the public to support their goals and their aims. In this way, the lie becomes something not just acceptable, but actually noble. On the other side of the debate, you have patriots like the late, great Aaron Russo or Alex Jones, who argue that, indeed, the tyranny of the majority is the problem, and the constitutional republic is the answer. This is something that was foreseen by the founders of the American Union. And thus it does not require any sort of new psyops, tricks, or media chicanery in order to convince the public to go along with the government. All that's needed is a constitutional republic to protect the rights of individuals to pursue their own happiness in their own way. One system is lying, oppressive, matrix-like control. The other is called freedom. It's up to you to decide which one you support. But I think it's only fair to give the late, great Aaron Russo the last word in today's episode. Let's turn back to that interview that he did earlier this year with Alex Jones.
1: The, the, the American people are living in a matrix. They don't understand the truth of how things are working in this country. You know, and let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The very fact is that if you, if you ask 100 people on the street, what kind of government Is America supposed to be. Ninety-nine percent of them will tell you a democracy. America is supposed to be a democracy. But that's a lie. That's an illusion. The word democracy is not written into the Constitution at one time. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. The Founding Fathers hated the idea of a democracy. They thought it was the worst form of government there is, and I agree with them. Because in a democracy, 51% of the people control 49% of the people. If you're part of the 49% you're not free. America was founded as a constitutional republic. And in that constitutional republic that we have, 99% of the people can't take away the rights of 1%. You have your rights because you were born with them. You have God-given human rights that nobody can take away from you. The government, the majority, no matter who they are, I can't take away your rights. And that's what what our founding fathers gave us. But the psychological operations that that they do to us, they make us believe that we're a democracy and that majority rules. You see? And they want you to believe that. Because then they tell you this poll says this many want this and this many want that and this many want this, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Well, Hitler was elected. Hitler was elected. Hitler did everything legally. And in a constitutional republic, a minority is pro- is protected against a majority. Wasn't it Benjamin Franklin, a paraphrase that said, democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner? Exactly. And then he also said, in a republic, the sheep would have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to let these scumbags just get away with more and more and more and tell us that lead paint's good for kids? And tell us that plastic in their kidneys is good? And tell us that mercury's good? I mean, it's ridiculous! It's not freedom to have our preachers being secretly told what to preach! It's not about Al-Qaeda! It's about us! Have you figured it out yet? Ah!